Hi, and welcome to another episode of Startup Stories, where I interview the best and brightest startup founders and experts so you can be ahead of the curve with your own startup venture. This episode brings us together with Johann Schlieper, president of Zurich at Business Angels Switzerland, and an active investor himself with a strong focus on market-driven innovations. Johann has founded three startups himself and primarily invests in technology and durable consumer goods startups. In this episode, we started off by exploring the good and the bad sides of being an investor, what you need to become an investor yourself, the biggest mistakes to avoid when starting out as an angel, and how he evaluates the quality of an idea. We then asked for advice he would give to founders, for example, how to filter the good from the bad investors, how many hours to invest in your startup, and the three things that investors want to see in a founder. Having Johan Schlieper on the show was a delight, and I'm super excited to share this expert series conversation with all of you today. Enjoy! All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and uh, answering some of our questions. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, could you maybe quickly start by introducing yourself and what you do in the in the startup uh, world? Yeah, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to that interview. My name is Johann Schlieper. I'm an angel investor since eight years. I'm also president of the Business Angel Switzerland and I've uh, had my own startup too a while ago with uh, not so good successes. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much into that scene here in Switzerland. I'm, I'm really trying to network, to reach out to other clubs and other organizations that uh, support startups. I have also been for a year director of the Founder Institute from uh, Silicon Valley and have passed this on now to a new director. Right, so quite active. Uh, quite active in the in the network, we met. Uh, we met. We saw you present at the startup night in Winterthur, where you showed the mm -hmm. the startup pitch for the cup ads. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, uh, and then we met uh, for for a coffee. Um, if you compare, you built, you worked on your own startups, and now you are on the other side, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, what do you enjoy about being on that side? On the investor side? I definitely enjoy uh, seeing innovative business ideas every single day, meeting engaged teams with bright hopes that have not been yet smashed by reality. And this is a really, really uh, interesting thing because I, my entire life I dealt with innovation. If I look back, even if I had a fixed employment somewhere, it wasn't a very innovative company. I started with Smart like 15 years ago when they had 10 employees and I left the company when they had 3,000 employees. So rapid growth and uh, completely new ideas to the market is something I, I really appreciate. I'm getting quickly bored with routine. So that's a good, good, uh, good yeah, side aspect of your life as an investor. Absolutely. But as I always say, and you all know, I'm not the first one to say it, a startup investment is like a roller coaster. It brings a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of adrenaline, but there are many ups and downs. And if I look back, unfortunately, I must say there are more downs than ups. <laughs> but you really enjoy the rare ups that you get in that journey. Yeah. What, what, uh, maybe we can go to the dark side, the downs. What mm -hmm. are some of those downs? 
Well, I'm just dealing with investor. one right now, one of my first and quite promising startups. Let's just show you. Uh, this is difficult, of course, <laughs> on a podcast to show. It was my second investment, this company. Um, I won't mention the name because we are now in a legal discussions and going to court. Uh, this company I invested in very early, quite an innovative idea. They have been very successful in the market, not so successful on the financial side. They got new investors and these new investors stole the company like a month ago. Stealing means you let the company go bankrupt and then you buy the assets from the Nachlassverwalter for like 10% of what they are worth. And now they are rebuilding the company and threw out all the old investors. Well, so even success is something that not everybody can enjoy. And they also threw out the founder, of course. That was the very first thing. How, how does that work? How can an investor get the company to be bankrupt? It's very... No, they cannot get it to be bankrupt. They try to make another financing round. That would have been Series B round. They didn't get enough financing to sustain the company for another two years. So they ran into, into so much debt, they had to declare bankruptcy. Of course, you can argue they should have tried harder to find more money or either the current investors should have invested more and more and more. But at the end of the day, it was an illegal procedure. They even con uh, confirmed, uh, convinced the general manager to switch sides. So he will be also the general manager of the new company. Uh, but all the old investors are out and they received absolutely nothing for their investment, be it money-wise or be it personal investment of time, ideas, network and all that stuff. So this is definitely one of the downs <laughs> that yeah, occupies me right now. That's incredible. You don't often hear about these no. stories. Are, are they? Is it because they're not very common or is it because because their stories like that, they're not really shared in public. No. This is not, I hope, not very common. It's the first time it happens to me. And from my point of view, it's also half criminal what they did. Mm. But all the investors, they come from abroad, so it's very hard to reach them. Mm. If you want to have a lawsuit in, in, in Hong Kong with one of these guys, it will take an eternity. Yeah. The only good thing is they see really value in that company. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. So I can be proud that we made grow so far and now we yeah. can watch it from far. Yeah. If you compare your experience now as an investor in general and your experience as a founder, what, what would be the main differences? What are you missing? What are you not missing? How would you compare these two? Oh, that's a good question. When I was a founder, I tried to do it all my, uh, on my own. I, I didn't have uh, co-founders. I financed uh, the whole thing by myself because I didn't want to be responsible to too many people and this is one aspect that I always tell my startups be aware of if you have many investors you have many opinions and many people who want to give advice and who want to be heard and if you ignore them for too long they walk away from you and it's not good to for the next financing rounds and I didn't want to have that so many people stirring in the same same meal um, but in the hindsight, I wouldn't have done it alone again, because you really need that exchange with other people, with a strong team, with uh, really positive and good investors. And this uh, uh, was my mistake at the end of the day. Yeah. Would you, I mean, so there's a bit of a balance of not having any investors at all. So not having any mm -hmm. support, doing everything by yourself, which is very difficult. And then we talk to, to founders who have, you know, 15, 
15, 20 uh, investors on board mm-hmm. in the beginning phase, especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that could be too many, you know, cooks in the kitchen, maybe. What's, mm-hmm. What would you say is a good, good balance? Or how would you try to find a balance as a founder if you had to do it again? The point is you don't have a choice. <laughs> you must take whatever you get. And if you have like 20 investors all giving 20,000 and there is no big investor around, you must take those. Yeah. There is no other way. No, nobody likes it very much. I would recommend, if you could choose, have up to three strategic investors. All of them give a significant amount of money and they really feel responsible for the company. They take a seat in the board. They help you develop whatever sales product or where their strength and their skill set is. Yeah. But this rarely, rarely is the case. Yeah. Normally, you don't find these investors. Yeah. So there's a lot of, you say, yeah, maybe 20,000, maybe 50,000 investors. For someone who wanting to get into investing, into angel investing, someone mm-hmm. sold a company and now they want to give back or invest in, in other companies. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, like, what do other investors require or expect from that person in sense of, you know, experience? Uh, and also money-wise, what's the minimum investment, <laughs> more or less? Probably that legally there's no yeah. minimum. You can probably no. give 10,000, 2,000, 1,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, for an angel round, for example. I will tell you what we tell all the new members for our club because this question comes up very often. When I become a business angel, what is the requirement? How much money, how much time, etc. should I bring? And we always tell them you should be aware that you should maximum uh, invest 10% of your available fortune. Mm -hmm. Available means something that's not bind in uh, real estate or or some other stuff. And on the other hand, we say you should have have at least 200,000 to invest because now you can start calculating (laughs) (laughs) Um, because you the first shot uh, always misses. That's yeah. our experience. So you should have at least ammunition for two or three shots. Yeah. And this is my advice for, for beginners in the angel scene. Don't fall too easily for the first investment that comes around. Mm. When you've decided, I want to do angel investment, then you get enthusiastic. And the first step normally is somebody you know. And that somebody knows somebody who has a startup and warmly recommends that startup and you go into that company and they're all very nice to you because you bring money then they are nice to you and then you start loving the product and the team and then you invest far too much money it's always the same mistake i did it myself my very first investment was 800,000 in one startup that was absolutely crazy i shouldn't have done that but i love these guys i love the idea and so on so i really would recommend start shooting small ammunition 22 millimeter if you know what I mean Uh, and do some small shots with experienced investors follow them look what they do how they deal what is important to them and then either it's a success or not you can start deciding more by your own on the second or third startup because deal flow is very important as an individual investor you don't have a deal flow you know people and you run into something and believe this is great. And if you have a big deal flow, then you can really start seeing, okay, where might be, we call them the raw diamonds. Startups they do, that don't look very much, they are not shiny, they don't, they don't have the best presentations or the smartest people with a magna cum laude from ETH or something, but there is something. And you must discover this kernel 
And it just takes time to, to discover that. Yeah. And another advice is always uh, avoid those hyped startups. You know, we have this list here of the top 100 startups yeah. in Switzerland, like Pia Vita and Ava and so on. And people say, okay, now I must invest into these. It's too late. Somebody yeah. else has discovered them and they are not raw diamonds anymore. They are polished diamonds already. Mm. Yeah. And we are looking for the raw diamonds because it's just cheaper to buy them. Yeah. The polished ones are really expensive. Yeah. What because advice do you give to new angels who how to like search for these raw diamonds? Um, you can start reading a lot of stuff. You can go to a lot of events like Startup Night and so on and meet a lot of people. But this is, of course, all not systematic. You run into many opportunities. You believe they are opportunities. My advice is really go to an organization that has a professional and regular deal flow where startups come in by a certain uh, scheme and process and where they are being rated and ranked by experts and then you have a first filter and that filter prevents you from, from many things. Of course, sometimes startups get filtered out that shouldn't have. Yesterday night I ran into one, we have a partner organization, Angel Club Aargau, and they had a presentation pitch of a company, I don't know the name, that's my biggest problem, I don't remember the names <laughs> of these guys anymore, and they do uh, something for uh, vessels, naval vessels, uh, to uh, determine the position of the anchor. Mm -hmm. As a non-marine person, I have no idea that this was even a problem, the position of my anchor, but he was really clear in showing that this is a big issue in large vessels and sport vessels and fishing boats and all that stuff, and he has a solution for that problem. We had this guy here half a year ago, and he handed in his documentation. We thought, oh, this is not very great. It's a niche market, and who cares? And so we declined it. Yesterday, I saw it again. Great guy, great idea. Why did we decline him? So this happens, and I re-invited him again to come to our deal flow. Because you need to have in that market a lot of open ears and eyes, and sometimes you need to see things twice or even three times to be convinced. Yeah. And for that you need a network and a process to, to screen those things. Yeah. yeah. Long answer for a short question. Yeah, yeah. Good, good answer. Yeah. Uh, I guess, Another important aspect is the are the more soft aspects of a of a when you meet a founder, you mm -hmm. know, is it does this person have integrity? Does it is it an you know mm -hmm. has this person some perseverance? Does it know you know can it work for a long period of time under yeah. hard mm -hmm. conditions? How do you how do you try to figure that out when you when you meet a new founder? That's probably the toughest part of all because it's about human beings and about psychology and all that stuff. I always tell people, you know, it's like getting married. Hmm? She's the most wonderful girl in the world and she's always so nice and you marry her and after one year you get a divorce. You just don't know how people really are, first problem, and second problem, they change over time. That's true. Maybe that startup was very nice in the beginning, but then they had a hard time and after two years they all got a big fight and got nasty and even criminal, who knows. So it's very, very hard to determine this. What I try, and what we all try actually, is really get in touch with people. So very early I talk to people, I try to put some small tasks for them to solve. And this we do in the due diligence phase. A small case, like imagine this and this happens. Now sit together with your team and tell us what would you do. 
the answer is not important. Important is the way how they get to that answer. Is mm. there one person dominating the whole discussion and the other nodding, so you know <laughs> this is not a good startup? Or do they get entangled and fight for many hours and never come to a solution? Not a good startup again. Um, but this is only you know a mm. workaround to, to get to get to know these people a little bit better. Yeah. Another thing that I do when I'm insecure about a startup, this happens more and more often, I don't invest, but I follow those guys. Sometimes I'm in the advisory board and sometimes I just call them every half a year, tell me about your progress, how are things going, should we meet with a team, and then you get a better feeling over time how people react and, and develop. Yeah, Yeah, we talk about this a few times that it's difficult to judge when you just have a snapshot. A snapshot. It's not even difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. Everybody tries to be nice in the first interview. It's like a job interview. Who doesn't want to present himself by his best side? Yeah. That's absolutely normal. Something, of course, that works as well is getting references, asking other people about that person or that team, uh, how they behave, uh, how uh, resilient they are, etc. Especially resilience is something you cannot test in a simulated environment. No. You really need to see in a moment of crisis, uh, how do they react? Yeah. Or in a moment when they have tons of work and just get overwhelmed by work. Are they still cool and acting in a normal way or completely stressed out? This you don't know. Yeah, yeah definitely. We, we, uh, I remember this question just popped up. Um, when we first met, uh, I asked you a question about the valuation. How do business angels put a valuation on an idea Mm -hmm. um, and I was I would I would really love for you to share you know the thought process. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's no perfect way, um, but yeah, what how do you approach this uh, yeah challenge? Okay, let, let me just get a, a, another perspective on this first. I, I was also teaching pricing strategy for many years, so my question is: Why would you pay for a fun, or why is the value of a Van Gogh painting forty million dollars? Why does it have that value? that's the value someone is willing to pay. Exactly. Some person, at least one, is willing to pay 40 million. That's the value of it. It's not the amount of paint and work and stuff they he put into that. And uh, this is what startups trying to argue when they sell the value of their company. They say, now we are very small and insignificant, but we have big visions, we want to change the world, and we want you to pay the price of that big vision, and not of we have right now. So valuation is always an issue of discussion. As you say, there is no perfect method. But what we try to promote in the market is, uh, I would say, the canvas and, and paint approach. And we call this uh, opportunity costing. So how much uh, money, effort, other resources did a startup put into getting where they are right now? Mm -hmm. And you can really calculate this in a, in a generous way. You give yourself a salary of 200,000. So if you work two years, your work is already worth 400,000 francs. Then you have external people, designers, programmers. They cost some money. You add this too. And then you are allowed to multiply it with a factor between one and two. We call this the market speed factor. There are some markets where you need to react very quickly because you're in trend developing fast. Then you get a higher uh, multiplier on the other end you get a lower one and with that you come to a value that is norm almost always lower than the value they ask 
The worst method, I don't have to discuss it here anymore, is DCF, discounted cash flow. It's, it's just, you know, valuation of future fantasies, mm -hmm. nothing else. And there's another approach how we get to our valuation, and that is gut feeling. We've seen, at least in our organization, I would say 2,000 startups. We've heard valuation of all of them. And of many of them, we know the paid valuation and, and the spread between asked and paid valuation. So we have a gut feeling for a certain startup in a, a specific industry, specific stage. Is it seed? Is it series A? How much worth could that startup or value could that startup have? But at the end of the day, it's always up to negotiation. If they are good negotiators, they get a higher valuation. If they are bad ones, they get a lower. Now, how would you argue that the opportunity cost method makes more sense compared to other because it's the only hard method where you have real numbers and calculate on a basis of real numbers. Of course, that multiplier is still a bit subjective. Mm -hmm. Is this a fast-moving market or not? But uh, we, we can discuss this and we come to a solution there. So there you have real numbers and we all have the same set of, of numbers and KPIs that we can discuss at the end of the day. Yeah. But on the other hand, I would say valuation is never such a big issue. Of course, we talk about it and we normally find rather quickly a solution for, for a good valuation. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we, we came up with a few questions um, that we titled Advice for Founders. Mm -hmm. uh, questions that we have, questions that other founders uh, often have. Um, so I'd like to quickly jump into those. Um, there, there are startups where, where you pitch and you're that early that you don't have traction yet. Mm -hmm. um, as a founder, how can I still convince someone to invest? What are what would you if you if you had to pitch an idea that doesn't have um, traction? What would you focus on in, when you sell your idea? There are two ways. The first one is probably the most difficult one because we are, we have a rule in our organization, Business Angel Switzerland, and that rule is if you're doing it for the first time, founding a startup, you will most probably fail. So if we have a second timer, a third timer, presenting a completely new idea with no traction, we listen much more careful to that person because we know he has already done it successfully. And the chances are big that he might do it again. So this is one way, but if you are really a first time founder with a first time idea, then it's getting tough because most angels don't pay for ideas. Ideas are cheap. You can have them everywhere. Implementation of an idea is important. So where, what we really look for is early kind of traction, and this is the very often, sometimes even misused, MVP. Mm. And most startups don't use MVPs properly. They build a prototype, call it MVP, and say this will be great. And MVP is something else. The customer has to pay for something. It is absolutely of no worth if the customer says, I like it, I will pay for it later when you have it. Yeah. The value of this is zero. If you have an LOI, but only in the B2B business, then I always say an LVI, LOI has a value of 100,000 Swiss francs. You can just add on your valuation. So if you have five LOIs from interesting, good customers, this shows some traction. For example, I have another startup. It's called Significant. They are building, I have somewhere brochure here. They are building a solution for better 
tracking advertising expenses. You know, in Switzerland, uh, they spend like six billion Swiss francs per year on advertising, mass media advertising. Like 30% is online and still 70% is offline. Online, you can track very nicely, great tools. Offline, very difficult. This poster campaign, what was the return on advertising? They don't know. So they build a solution for that. And it's really tricky and lots of technology involved, big, big data you need. What convinced me, very early they went to big uh, advertisers in Switzerland, namely uh, Swisscom and Micro, and tried to convince them of their still very wag idea for a new uh, IT solution. And they did great statements. I talked to them on the phone and asked them, why, why do you believe this is going to be a good solution for your company? And they were so enthusiastic. They said, okay, they are nowhere yet. But if they will ever achieve what they are planning to achieve, this will revolutionize the market. So I said, okay, this must be something. Mm. And those customers paid 5,000 francs each in the beginning just to be part of that prototyping phase. So this is a very early traction that you should get from the market. Yeah. What I really detest is that um, engineer's perspective on something. We, are, we often have this from ETH, and that is specify a great new product. Build, release one, two, and three internally until you are absolutely happy with what you build and you have the latest technology involved. It has AI and blockchain, whatever you need, and then you go out to the market with it. Mm. This simply doesn't work. But many engineers and scientists, they are a bit afraid of that thing market. And customers who might dislike a feature that I am so proud of, but then you need to go out really earlier and, and check this. Or yeah. you need to have investors who force you to do that. Now stop the development, you spend next month just validating your idea in the market, then you come back and then you can finish whatever the market says they need in your product. Right. I read somewhere, there's many pages with your profile on, <laughs> but um, that th the topic market-driven innovations versus mm -hmm. tech-driven innovations, um, how can, we see a lot, especially here in Zurich with ETH, a lot of tech-driven. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And as a mar we're working on, uh, and, and others are working on more market-driven startups, um, th there's no tech, there's no IP, how can a startup like that kind of compete in the you know for the attention of investors the market driven one yeah the market driven one mostly i would say better than the tech driven ones yesterday i had another one uh, they dis not discovered they invented a new kind of microscope much much smaller than everything you could do up until now on a nano scale you could test materials and stuff i forgot the, the name of it and they did something very smart. They had a CEO who was the scientific genius. And then they had a CFO who had an MBA and not so much into technology. And he let the CFO present. Hmm. Because in the room there were many investors and no scientists. And if the CEO would have presented, it would have been an absolute failure. Nobody would have understood anything except that it's somehow great, but I don't understand it. Hmm. And the target group for uh, startups, the investors, very rarely are so deep into that matter than uh, the founders when they come from ETH and, and stuff. Yeah. So my experience is market-driven, you know, not only market-driven, but market-influenced innovations have much better chances. 
And I don't like that approach that Switzerland has. They go for deep tech. Mm. That is really absolutely new technology on the frontier of what is being done worldwide. I don't like deep tech. Mm. It might take 10 years until a real feasible product comes out of it. This is nothing for, for business angels. VCs can do that. They have enough money for, for deep tech. We need more low tech with big market implementation. Yeah. That's better chances for us. So I would say, yes, market-driven innovations have good chances with business angels. Okay. That's hopeful for all yeah. the... Yeah. Because yeah, uh, we, we go to, to a lot of events and it's very often it's very tech-driven. Uh, from ETH spin-offs and yeah, of course ETH is about tech yeah, and nothing exactly. else. Yeah. And the Swiss corporation, Swiss, how you say the Bund, um, Swiss, uh, the government, the government, yeah. they push deep tech as well. If you go to all these CTI initiatives or look at Venture Kick, that is much supported by the government, not only the government. They all look at universities with new technologies to bring to the market. This is an approach you can do that. Yeah. But it's not a very interesting one for business angels. There you need other money sources and other types of investors. Mm, right. yeah. What are some of the things that you look for when you when you meet a founder? What you know, what maybe three aspects that that three aspects three boxes right. that you need to check. Yeah, you you, you had this question here. I, I noted something down. <laughs> Let's see whether I still remember it. Um, you said something about integrity and endurance. Yes, integrity is definitely a trait that we, we need. It's, but it's, an, it's, like a, basic it's, it's requirement. a basic requirement. Without that, it wouldn't work. No. So first thing is being absolutely transparent about what you do. And this starts at the pitch. If you just pitch, you are the best, the greatest, your solution has no competitors. We always hear this. There's no competition in the market. We have a rule, if there's no competition, there's no market for it. I can't, Probably, I yeah. can't believe that there are still people do it, saying that. Yeah, exactly. You we, can just Google how mm -hmm. to pitch and that probably will be yeah. one big point. Do not say you don't have competition. And very often we even sit during their pitch and we have all our smartphones with Google on it. Three clicks and you have a long list of competitors and this guy in front is saying there are no competitors. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you confront them with it, they say, ah, but they do different things and we are planning to do it much better, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, there is mostly competition. So integrity is putting all the cards on the table, saying uh, where your uh, planned solution is positioned in the market, name the main competitors, show that you have seen them, that you know where their strengths and weaknesses are. And also about the numbers, for example, and even more important, the most lies we hear is about the team. You see the team chart, there are five great geniuses on it, and then you ask, how many percent does this guy work in the company? Oh, he doesn't work yet, but later on he might. And this guy here, oh, he does 10%, and he has another startup, and he is employed at this and this company. Uh, so there they lie very often, even more on the advisory board, you put big names that you know, they once had a phone call with these guys, and that is it. Be transparent, because latest in your due diligence, you will find out. Do they really have these people on the team? Are they as great as, as they claim to be? And do the advisors ever show up and give advice, or is it just name-dropping? So integrity is very important. Um, I have another trait here that I believe is Equally important, it goes together with the transparency that's good, good communicators. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, one of my startups she is really great in giving updated information also the negative parts not only yeah we want a new client but uh, we have trouble here and there and this good communications is also very important to get new team members mm. you must attract if you grow new team members to your team and you cannot afford to pay a lot of money so you must be able to communicate your vision and bring people on board for little money and lots of hope and this hope you must must communicate well that is a very important thing and the last one of course is resilience the most difficult one to test are they even able to work well under lo lots of pressure and with lots of disappointments will they continue doing it or will they give up very early no. have you had founders that are you know less extroverted more introverted and have mm -hmm. had issues with the communication part yes we did this I like the most more introverted better because they think more and speak less so before they launch something they really think about it but they have trouble communicating it sometimes so the best uh, setup would be to have another founder or at least team member who is really great in doing all that outside communications with suppliers, customers, investors, whatever. Yeah. So I think the balance between those two is very important. Yeah. And if you're not, you just need to learn it. It's just practice. It is hard to learn. Good communication is hard to learn. Yeah, you should. If you visit the seminars, get regular feedback and stuff. Yeah, you can improve, but you don't have time for this. Yeah, it should be there when you start your startup, and later on, it's really tough to learn. Yeah, I would say that's true. If you go on the other side and not um, rating the founders and more the investors from a founder's perspective, mm -hmm. um, how do we detect a bad from a good investor? And the question is, what is a bad investor? Yeah, you tell that's me. probably the first question we have yeah. to answer here. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, you can pass the question back to me. What, <laughs> yeah. what are the guests? So. What, what could be a bad investor? Okay, we have one here. A bad investor is stealing the company. This is a real case because they like the company, but they don't like the founders and they don't like the old investors. But this is a rare case. A normal bad investor is one that invests little money and has lots of requirements. So it starts, you can see these people very early in the process, it starts with the due diligence. They want to have numbers and documents and endless meetings and discussions. They bring lawyers, etc., etc. And at the end of the day, they invest 20,000 Swiss francs. So if you recognize these people early in the process, try to pool them with other investors and say, uh, if you come back and bring three or four friends and they all want to invest 20,000, we uh, make a syndicate and then they can invest together. Don't say no, we, we won't take your money. So this is a kind of bad investor stirring uh, up a lot of, of, of movement without really advancing the organization. Of course, there are others that even try to lure away good employees to another startup of his who might need this programmer better. We had this case too already. Um, so basically, it's they don't think really for the good of the company they're either very much afraid of the risk or they are just uh, peop complicated people who want to put their complicated mindset into startups. And startups don't need complication, they need simplicity. I think that mm -hmm. what, I, what I've seen that yeah. might be bad investors. So. Yeah. And those, yeah, I mean, you said you detect them, but you, you, do you detect them early or 
in the end when they say I'm only going to invest 20,000 um, which might take a long due diligence as you said yeah I mean you, you still believe this guy is bringing 2 million so he's entitled to ask a lot of questions exactly uh, so very early in the process please start to, uh, to ask for an indication of the amount they might invest if everything turns out to be fine and alright how much are you considering to invest and if they don't say a number you should already be suspicious yeah. of course it's a big range between 10 and 2 million you <laughs> you're not further than before but this happens very rarely mm. yeah. you said perseverance and, and resilience is, is an important thing for founders as an as mm -hmm. for you as an investor how how do you expect the day of a founder to look like if you invest in their startups hours hour wise you know there's the there's the one side that says you know hustle uh you're 16 18 hours a day um then there's you know the other side you need to have a balanced life do enough sports so that you're mentally you know ready for for the challenges mm -hmm. what's your view on that you know the first thing i noted down here how many hours do you think they should work on their startup i noted down 24. 24 does not mean you have to work 24 hours, but you have to think about it 24 hours. When I had my own startup, I had many sleepless nights thinking about this problem and that problem. It never went away. Even if you do sport, you do sport thinking about how could I win that customer or whatever, some of your startup problems. But on the other hand, you should be fit enough to at least have the endurance to do this for three years long. So a kind of work-life balance is, is necessary there. I never push them to work over weekends and stuff, but we regularly exchange emails because they are doing it anyway and I'm doing it anyway. It's not work, it's interest, it's engagement. That's yeah. a different thing. Yeah. What I really don't like is startups that have too much distractions in the sense of having another job, having a second startup, or even if they say, oh yeah, next week I'm going to marry and then we are going to have kids and stuff. I said, they're very nice, but then you cannot do your startup anymore. Mm -hmm. You believe you can, but it's not possible. So mentally, 24 hours, but physically, I would say 12 hours is enough. Yeah. All right. Cool. That was all the questions. Yeah. Alrighty. Prepared. Great. And huh? Yeah. Thanks so much for, for taking the time and answering our questions. We yeah. really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Good question, by the way. That was it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Startup Stories. Make sure to check out the show notes with additional links at nerdentrepreneurs.com. And if you liked our podcast, leave a review on iTunes. Cheers. Cheers.